This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Nick Parker talks about the miracle of Lanciano and the theology of Eucharistic miracles of Thomas Aquinas. Father Nick is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Kelly Roper. Father Nick Parker, and he is going to be talking to us about the miracle of Lanciano and theology of Eucharistic miracles according to Thomas Aquinas. I am really interested. I don't think I've had this topic before. So okay. uh, I've, I've definitely talked about Eucharistic miracles, but not according to Thomas Aquinas. So I'm really excited about that. Um, we know that all good things begin with prayer. So would you start us off in a prayer for this hour? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are a good and loving God, and we give you thanks and praise for all of your many gifts and blessings. We ask that you continue to send your Holy Spirit upon us. Help us to always grow in our faith. And as we grow in our faith, help us to grow in a deeper relationship with you. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so again, we are talking with Father Nick Parker. And uh, by way of introduction, after earning a degree in instrumental piano at Fort Hayes State University, Father Nick entered the seminary. He was ordained in 2008 by Bishop Paul Coakley. Father Nick Parker can be defined as a theological scholar. He has a degree in theology from Mendeline Seminary in Mendeline, Illinois. He also has an advanced degrees from the same seminary, a licentiate, I hope I said that right, Liz, like, Close enough. Close enough. In sacred theology, and he has completed a doctorate in, sac in sacred theology. He is the pastor of Immaculate Heart of Mary in Hayes. What a blessing you must be to that, that parish. So tell us a little bit, you know, about the, the miracle of Lanciano. I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners out there that have never heard of it. So, so give us a little bit of background. Sure. Well, the miracle of Lanciano occurred in the town of Lanciano, Italy, in 750. So how the story goes is that there was this, um, this Basilian monk who was a very wise monk, a, a very good monk, but he was starting to have doubts of the Eucharist. And along with these doubts in the Eucharist, there were other sort of heresies that were cropping up all the time around him. And he, wanting to be a man of good knowledge and wisdom, would want to look into, you know, what is this heresy? What does it mean? How do we define it? How do we argue against it? But it just kept adding more and more to his confusion. And so with this, this ever-growing battle with doubt was occurring with him. And uh, he would fervently pray, Lord, help me with this doubt. Help me to figure out the, your truth. And so with all this fervent prayer, there was one morning where he was under a considerable amount of attack with, with doubt in the Eucharist. And while he was under this considerable amount of attack, he went to say Mass. And when he said Mass, at the time of the consecration, as soon as he said the words of consecration, the host turned into actual flesh mm -hmm. and the wine turned into actual blood. Now, after this occurred, he, uh, he stood at the altar for a while in silence and then he turned to the people and he had this he had this quote where he he told the people O fortunate witnesses to whom the blessed god to confound my disbelief 
has wished to reveal himself in this most blessed sacrament and to render himself visible to our eyes. Come, brethren, and marvel at our God so close to us. Behold the flesh and blood of our most beloved Christ. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to see the actual flesh and the actual blood that, that had uh, occurred during that, mm-hmm. those words of consecration. Now, after this happened, the, the flesh never decayed. And so it is still in a, in a monstrance in Lanciano, Italy, and people can come in and see it. The blood turned into five hardened globules of blood. Those different globules of blood are of different shape, different size, different weight. Uh, however, one of the things that was very odd about it is that when they put those on uh, a balancing scale, they always weighed the same. Mm-hmm. So any one would weigh as much as any one other. Also, any one would weigh as much as any four. Any two would weigh as much as any three. No matter how they did it, it always weighed the same, even though each one was a different size, shape, and weight itself. So those are also still preserved, and you can see those also in uh, Lanciano, Italy. Mm-hmm. And so tell us the significance of that, you know, with, with uh, you know, being able to mix it up on the scales, and yet they all weigh the same. Well, the, the Eucharist is Christ himself. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So with that, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a bit, whenever you receive the Eucharist, you're receiving the entirety of Christ. Mm-hmm. You receive the host. You've received all of him. You receive a sip of, of the precious blood. You've received all of him. If you receive a small bit of the host and another person gets to receive a large bit of the host, no one has received more of Christ than anyone else. Mm-hmm. If somebody goes to Mass and receives Christ twice a day, they have not received more Jesus than you have. So that's why any one weighs just as much as any four, any two weighs just as much as any three, because it is supposed to show that that it is Christ. So. That, that's beautiful. It, it truly is. And and body, blood, soul, and divinity all there mm-hmm. together. Just beautiful. And the five globules also signifies the five wounds of Christ on the cross. Excellent. I had not heard that before. That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. Wow. 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 So tell us a little bit more about this, scientific studies, anything that, that you want to share with us? Sure. So there was actual some scientific studies that were done on this because people were, were curious about its validity. This miracle, it it occurred in the 8th century, 750 AD. These scientific studies were not done until the early 1970s and also again in the early 1980s. But anyways, I'm I'm not much of a scientist myself, but I can kind of, I, I printed off some stuff so I could read like all the things that they found. First of all, the flesh is a flesh from the side of a heart. The flesh is of such a a thin slice of the heart, though, that it's something that cannot ever be replicated. They they can't actually slice the heart that thin today, but that's what occurred in 750. Mm. Now, the blood they found was true blood of human species. The flesh consists of the muscular tissue of the heart. In the flesh, you can see the... I'm going to pronounce these the best I can. The myocardium, the endocardium, and the vagus nerve, and also the left ventricle of the heart. So all of that is depicted in that, that uh, slice of the heart. The flesh and the blood have the same blood type, which is an AB blood type, which they found to be the same blood type on the Shroud of Turin. 
In the blood, there were found proteins of the normal proportions that you would find in a human person. Also in the blood, there were the normal minerals of chloride, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and calcium that you would find in a human person. And uh, one of the strange things about this is that although the flesh and blood have been susceptible to the, the elements in the air, hopefully not so much now since they are preserved in a monstrance, but even though they had been susceptible to those elements for centuries, they, uh, the, the flesh has never decayed. So it's still completely preserved. Amazing, isn't it? Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. To, and, and to think that our Lord did this for that priest who was doubting the faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, was, he, he made that possible. And, and the priest recognized it immediately, that that, that, was, that was the whole reason. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, God can, if, if you give him room, he will work with anything. So yeah. <laughs> working with the, with the priest's doubt in order to, to emphasize the faith. So the title of the talk says, that, which was Miracle of Lanciano and the Theology of Eucharistic Miracles According to St. Thomas Aquinas. The title says that we're going to discuss the theology of Eucharistic miracles through Thomas Aquinas. So what does Thomas Aquinas have to say about Eucharistic miracles? Okay. Well, to get into this, we have to get into a lot of preliminary things that Aquinas says about the Eucharist in general. Okay. Right. And if you're ever interested in reading this yourself, it's it's in the Summa Theologica, questions 73 through 83. For anyone who has never read the Summa Theologica, it is fascinating, but it is not a fast read. These are one of those writings where you want to sit down with your cup of coffee, give yourself a good hour so that you can get through maybe a couple of pages. Um, but it's, it's fascinating the way that, that uh, Aquinas writes and, and all of his, his clarity in the way that, that he explains things so well. But the main thing that I want to talk about to, as a preliminary part comes up around question 75 in the Summa Theologica. And this is where Aquinas talks about the accidents and substance of the Eucharist. Now, when we use the terms accidents and substance, we're talking about these in scientific terms. So Aquinas is going to go into a bit of science here. So it's not the the normal accidents that you would think about. You know, you trip on the sidewalk, you had an accident. That's not what it is. So accidents and substance, when you talk about the accidents of, of an item, that's basically the, the stuff that it's made out of. The substance is its true essence or its, its true form. So to give a bit of an example of how this works, uh, let's take the example of a wooden chair. If we had a wooden chair in front of us, what would those accidents of the wooden chair be? What is the stuff that it is made out of? Well, it's made out of wood. Um, but what is its substance? What is its true form or essence? The true form or essence is chair, all right? But let's say that I were to take an ax and just kind of go to town on that chair. After I've kind of taken my ax and done everything I wanted to with it, with the chair, what would the accidents of that be? Well, the stuff that it's made out of is still wood. That's, that's still there. I've not done anything to change the, the accidents of it. But what would the substance of it be? Well, the substance is no longer a chair. The substance is wood pile or, you know, scraps or whatever have you. So I've changed the substance, but not the accidents. 
So that's kind of what the idea of accidents and substance is. Now we want to take this and go into the Eucharist and use the terms accidents and substance to describe it. Prior to consecration, we want to ask what are the accidents and substance of that which we are bringing forward for, for the sacrament. Well, the accidents, we're not going to go too complicated, are we have bread, that's the stuff that's in the, in the pattern there, and we have wine, that's what's in the cruet. So that's, that's the stuff that it's made out of, those are the accidents. What is the substance? What is its true essence prior to consecration? In a sense, it's the same thing. We have these bread and, and wine, these, these, the, that's the substance of it. But then when the priest is saying the words of consecration, as soon as he says the word body, and as soon as he says the word blood, when he says the word body, that bread is, is no longer bread. It's changed. That's when it's become the Eucharist. And that wine is no longer wine. It's changed. That's when it's become the Eucharist. But what are the accidents and substance? The accidents, the stuff that is made out of, is actually still bread. If I were to take a Eucharist, uh, a host, and put it under a microscope, it would be bread. That's, 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 the, that's the accidents. And that wine would still be wine. But the substance all of a sudden has changed. Its true essence is no longer bread and wine. We've kept the accidents the same, but now the substance is Christ himself. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. Jesus in his entirety. And that's how we have to understand what the Eucharist is and why it looks in our eyes as bread and wine, but why in reality it is Jesus himself. Now, there's a couple other key factors to this. Aquinas says that if you do not have the proper accidents, you cannot have the proper substance. So, if it's time for the presentation of the gifts at Mass and you're at a Catholic church, but they bring forward pizza and beer, that's not the accidents of bread and wine. Yeah. So, it doesn't matter what the words are, the priest will not be able to change that into the true substance of the Eucharist. But there's even specifics on this. So, if they bring forward bread and wine, that bread has to be wheat bread, flour and water. That's what it's made of. If somebody decides to say, well, I don't like wheat bread as much, let's do cinnamon raisin. That's not the proper accidents. It cannot become the Eucharist. In addition, it does have to be some form of wheat bread, which is why I know a lot of people today have gluten intolerance. We can use low gluten hosts so it still has that, that wheat bread element to it. But no gluten hosts actually render the sacrament invalid. If you have a host that is completely gluten-free, that can't become the Eucharist because that's not the proper accidents. It cannot become the proper substance. The wine has to be 12 to 18% alcohol, 100% fruit of the vine. Now, there haven't been as many clear-cut definitions on the wine as there has been with the bread. So with the, with the bread, sometimes people will accidentally drop a little bit of sugar in it or, or you know, some sort of sweetener will get added into it. As long as you can call it wheat bread, it still is the Eucharist. With wine, there hasn't been so much discussion as to whether or not there are certain additives or different factors in it. So that's not as clearly defined as, as the bread is, but that's one of the reasons why 
many people are still very careful that it has to be 12 to 18 percent alcohol content, 100 percent fruit of the vine, which means that a lot of the wine that people buy from their local liquor store, because it has all these different additives and flavorings and things like that, that actually it's not completely defined, but it potentially could render the sacrament invalid. So we have to be very careful that we're using the proper substance, the, the proper accidents, um, proper material that Jesus himself used so that we can properly have the substance of the Eucharist. That's a lot of preliminary stuff, but it's all very important to understand Thomas Aquinas' theology on the miracles. So where did these definitions come from? A lot of the definitions stem from scripture itself. Scripture is very specific as to what kind of bread that Jesus used. Mm. And, and you'll find a lot of those uh, specifics actually in the book of Exodus, where they celebrated the first Passover. So with the first Passover, they had to make sure that, you know, God was very specific. This is what you have to use. Mm -hmm. And that was used all the way up until the Last Supper, where Jesus consecrated the, the Eucharist. Also with the wine, you know, we, we want to make sure that we are using what Jesus used. And so therefore, we're, they look at this is what Jesus would have had, this is what we will use as well. And so it's basically defining what, what is in Scripture and saying that we're going to be following the, the Scripture when we have our Eucharistic celebrations as well. All right, so more that you want to share on, on that before we start talking about actually what Thomas Aquinas said? Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much the, the preliminary things okay. that you need in order to understand Aquinas' theology on Eucharistic miracles. We need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about the miracle of Lanciano and the theology of Eucharistic miracles of Thomas Aquinas. Father Nick Parker. The Miracle of Lanciano and Theology of Eucharistic Miracles of Thomas Aquinas. Kelly Roper conducts the interview. We are talking with Father Nick Parker, and um, he's talking with us about the Miracle of Lanciano and the Theology of Eucharistic Miracles according to Thomas Aquinas. So everything that we've talked about so far is going to lead us into what does what does St. Thomas Aquinas have to say about Eucharistic miracles. Okay. Well, I did remember one other thing I need to talk okay. about with sure. Aquinas' accidents and substance. So we kind of already defined that if the accidents are not there, the substance will not be there. If you don't have the proper stuff, you will not have the Eucharist. Likewise, if you consecrate the Eucharist, if something happens to the accidents, no longer will you have the substance. So let's say I consecrate the wine and it becomes the precious blood of Jesus. If someone were to take that wine, which is now the, the Eucharist, the, 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 it now it truly is Christ, so they take the precious blood and then they started to add water to it which is part of what we do when we purify the vessels to make sure that, that we've, we've uh, diluted all the precious blood. You add water to it, well, you add enough water to it, it's no longer the stuff of wine. And so therefore, because it's no longer the stuff of wine, even though there might be wine molecules floating around, it's no longer the Eucharist. 
um, if uh, if for example there was a, a church that had been forgotten about for for centuries and and uh, a host was left in there and the host had decayed then if it was no longer bread it would no longer be the Eucharist either um, same thing if you take a host and you and you put it in water and it dissolves the accidents are no longer there no longer is the substance so that's also an important aspect of Aquinas' theology that's going to come into play in a second. So, and, and don't we have to, I don't know what the word would be, but doesn't the, the precious blood mixed with the water have to go into the ground, right? Not just into, you know, so, so we're still showing respect. Even though right. we're diluting, we're, we're still showing respect. Yeah, we still show great respect because we know where that came from. We know what that is connected to. So, yes, it has to go into the ground, um, which can be... Or, or consumed, consumed or, or sure. put in the ground. So if it is put in the ground, it has to go straight into the ground. So that's why it is an option to take it outside and pour it into the ground or to pour it down a sacrarium. But be careful with sacrariums because many sacrariums actually in modern day, plumbers don't know. <laughs> they still will build something with a curve in the pipe and then, uh, and then through and then down straight into the ground. Straight means straight, means no curves. Yeah. Uh, we can't have holy items stuck in, in plumbing yeah. in, the, in the middle. Yeah. So I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. So, All right, so where do we go next? All right, so now we're gonna talk about what Aquinas says about Eucharistic miracles. You can find this in the Summa Theologica, question 76. And basically, what Aquinas does is he starts out with a question, and then he gives, um, people will give certain responses to the question. Just so you know, every response that he says, some say that, is going to be wrong. He'll then say, I answer that, ah. and then he will refute the questions. That's kind of the model. Yeah. So the question that's brought up in the Summa Theologica, question 76, article 8, is where he has the answer to that. But they say, what happens when during the consecration, the bread and wine turn into flesh, blood, or a small child? <laughs> he throws in a small child. <laughs> Apparently, people were having, at the time, visions at the consecration of an actual small child turning wow. into uh, the, the, the bread and wine turning into a small child. Hmm. So there's a couple parts to this. The first part that Thomas Aquinas says is, if the uh, bread and wine turn into flesh or blood or a small child, but then it turns back into bread and wine, because the accidents are bread and wine, then it is truly the Eucharist, and everyone is free to come and receive it. So it's like, this turned into true flesh. Can I, can I receive it? It's, it's, now, it's now the accidents of bread. Yes, you're supposed to receive it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what the sacrament is about. So he says, don't worry about that. That's truly the Eucharist. But then, and he only goes into this briefly in his response in this question, says, but what happens when the bread and the wine turn into actual flesh and actual blood and they remain there? What happens then? 
Well, keep in mind for Aquinas, you have to have the proper accidents to have the proper substance. He says then, because it is not bread and wine, but rather flesh and blood, we can no longer call it the Eucharist because it is not of the proper accidents and therefore it is not what we would call the Eucharist. Now, there were a lot of people that really struggled with this because they said, well, there's, there's, this, there's this issue then because, because if this is the miracle that happened, all right, maybe we can't call it the Eucharist. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's, it's not truly Jesus though, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's not bread and wine, so, so, uh, so it, it can't be considered the, the sacrament that we receive, but that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't there. Aquinas goes on to say, if the accidents aren't there, neither is the substance. If it turns into actual flesh and actual blood, because the accidents aren't there, neither is the substance. Mm. In the Eucharistic miracles, where it is a permanent change, you no longer have the true presence of Christ either. Now, a lot of people were really upset about that because they're like, this is a real miracle, though. And Thomas says, yes, it's absolutely a real miracle. Say, okay, well, let's say that you're right, for example. Let's just assume that you're correct, that the bread and wine have turned into a completely different substance, and so therefore the actual substance of Jesus isn't there. And so it's can't call it the Eucharist, and you're saying that we can't call it the true presence of Jesus either. But that flesh and blood then is at least still Jesus's, even though it's not his entire body, blood, soul, and divinity that's there, even though it's not all Jesus there, we can still say at least that that bit of, of flesh and that bit of blood is actually Jesus's. And Aquinas goes on to say, if the bread and wine turns into actual flesh and blood, we can say that it is truly human flesh and human blood. Although we don't actually know whose flesh and blood it is, the only thing we know is that it is not Jesus's flesh and not Jesus's blood. And a lot of people, I guess, have had qualms with that as well. But this I'm is trying to wrap my head around all this. this so, yeah. Yes. So he says, if the actual miracle happens where there's actual flesh and actual blood and it remains flesh and blood, it is not the Eucharist, it's not the true presence, and it's not Jesus's flesh or blood. The reason for this, he says, is because Jesus is only now whole and entire in his resurrected form. And that is the only way that Jesus now will remain, is in his entirety, his resurrected form. And therefore, it's not like the Eucharist is a sliver of heart there, or or a piece of blood here. And it's not like when you receive the Eucharist, it's like, I wonder if I got the finger or if I got the toe or, you know, so that's not what it is. But he, he says that, that, uh, that Jesus is only in his entirety in his resurrected state. And so therefore you can't have pieces of him here or there. Now, some people today will argue, well, what if it's the same DNA? What if it's the exact same blood type? What if it's the same everything of Jesus himself? Well, Aquinas did not have that science when he was writing. <laughs> so with that, he, uh, he would not have had the whole way of explaining, well, if it is of the same DNA or, you know, but basically if we were to apply what he says to modern day, he might admit that yes, it's of the same DNA. 
he might admit that it's of the exact same composition of Christ's, but it would be more of along the lines of a clone as opposed to actually Christ himself. So perhaps the miracle is an exact replica, but a replica is not the same as the exact person himself. So an, an example of that is if we were to, you know, scientists are, are now working on, on data of how to clone different animals. You can clone a, a different animal, but that different animal is not going to be the exact same animal as the initial animal. Or another good example of this is identical twins. Supposedly identical twins have the same DNA. They have the same structure, the same composition. But they are far from being the same person. So uh, a clone is not the same thing as the person himself. So it's possible that, that these Eucharistic miracles would be of the same composition of Christ himself. But according to Aquinas, we can't say that it's like Jesus like put it, took a sliver of his heart or, or drained a bit of a vial of his blood, that he is only whole and entire in his, in his resurrected state. That's, and, and that last um, part about the, the identical twins and things kind of answered Mike, because I was thinking, I know that there's some Eucharistic miracles where the heart is actually beating, right? And, and, there are some, know, yeah, that yeah. where the, the, the flesh and blood is still living under yeah. the microscope. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I guess the the part about the identical twins kind of helps us maybe to un to to bring that together and understand that that can still occur. Mm -hmm. Um even with Thomas Aquinas's uh definitions of of all of this. So yeah. it's very very interesting and very hard at the same time to to wrap your head around at least for a lay person like me. So It's 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 very interesting. Um it should be said that the none of this has been officially defined by the church. Mm -hmm. But because it's never been officially defined by the church, we kind of go to our major theologians who have spoken on it. And Aquinas is probably the one that's that's most clear and and complete in his explanations of Eucharistic theology. Yeah. So a lot of what we do when it comes to Eucharistic theology is to revert back to Aquinas. Yeah. So where do we, you know, where do we go now? We've got the background. So do we go on to to the next question that uh, you know, if if this is what Thomas Aquinas says about Eucharistic miracles, then what's the point of Eucharistic miracles, right? <laughs> it's a really good question because uh, Aquinas just really takes you on a trip here, you know? And um, a lot of people, they, they love the Eucharistic miracles, but when, when they look at Aquinas, it's like, you know. Yeah, darn, right? <laughs> thanks for shattering all my hopes and dreams. But I think this is important to look at kind of in the light of miracles as a whole. And let's start by looking at some of the miracles that Jesus did in the scripture. So, for example, you know, Jesus will, will do things like, like curing somebody who is a paralytic, or uh, Jesus will, you know, help somebody who was, who was uh, deaf and mute, and, and he'll, uh, you know, even raise people from the dead. But when you think about it, what happens in the rest of those people's lives? A person who is a paralytic, he is uh, he's miraculously able to, to walk again. Well, at some point he's going to get old, and when he gets old, there might be a time where he's not going to be able to walk again, or at least not as well as he did. Jesus cured a leper. There's probably a chance that the leper got sick again at some point. Maybe not with leprosy, but he did get sick again. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, the rest of Lazarus' story is actually really fascinating. 
I myself don't know it, but I know how it ends. He dies <laughs> again. And whenever you look at any of Jesus's miracles and you look at the rest of the people's stories, the lame are able to walk, but they become lame again. The sick are cured, but they will become sick again. The dead are raised to life, but they will die again. And in the end, we look at this and we say, well, what's the point of that? Well, in a sense, they're all subpar in a sense because Jesus does these miracles to point to a higher reality, mm. to point to something that is greater. Mm. Which if Jesus is doing these miracles to point to something greater, that means that we have to look at the miracles as something lesser. Mm. So Jesus has the ability to heal, not just physically, but spiritually. And that spiritual healing is much better than any sort of lame walking again. Yeah. Jesus has the ability to, to lift the spirits and give us the virtue to, to live a, a healthy way of spiritual life, much more powerful than being cured of any sort of leprosy. Yeah. Jesus has the ability to raise us to eternal life, much better than having to live more of this one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so all of his miracles in that sense are lesser because they are trying to point to something greater. That's where our faith really needs to be, not so much in the lesser miracle, but in the greater reality. Mm -hmm. Aquinas will then go on to say this about Eucharistic miracles, because people were looking at this and they were saying, well, then it's all a lie. It's all a lie. It, like None of this is real if what you were saying is all, all just deception. But he writes in this section on Eucharistic miracles, this is not deception because it is done to represent the truth. It shows us the truth. If this wasn't the Eucharist, then, then, then the, the Eucharistic miracles would be truly pointless. Yeah. They would totally be, be lies. But they always point us to what the reality of the sacrament is. And being able to receive Christ himself in the Eucharist is much more powerful than to be able to see any miracle from a distance. Yeah. The, the miracle from the distance, it can be inspiring, but it can never surmount to the reality of that true union with Jesus himself. Yeah. All right, so we've talked a lot about, you know, we started out talking about the miracle of Lanciano, then we talked about the theology of Eucharistic miracles, talked about a little bit of background on um, accidents and, and substance and, and the Eucharist and all kinds of stuff. So how are we going to take all of this information, Father, and relate it back to where we started with, with the miracle of Lanciano? Okay. Well, the miracle of Lanciano, you know, there's, there's been other miracles since, but it's, it's still one of my favorites just because it's so old and, yeah. uh, and just because it was so radical and even so radical today. But I really like how Aquinas says that it is to represent a truth. There's, and there's so many truths that it represents. When in the miracle of Lanciano, the host turned into true flesh, and they were able to see that, first of all, it was a flesh that was so thin that it couldn't be replicated, it, it really points to, okay, this cannot be some sort of trickery. It couldn't be some sort of a priest that was trying to say, well, I'll just do this sleight of hand thing with, you know, this, this this flesh that I that I found, you know, or or anything like that, because they said it cannot be replicated. It's just so precise 
that that it's impossible for anyone with any technology to 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 do something like this, especially in 750. So it shows that something truly happened, that there is something that's 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 truly there, that's that's beyond human control. The idea that the flesh came also from the heart. Um, we said that when you receive Jesus, you receive all of him, right? You're not receiving like, oh, I got the rib or I got the ear or whatever it is, that you're receiving all of him. But the idea that the flesh became particularly of the heart, it just goes to show all the more that, that great love that Christ has for us in, in the Eucharist. So signifying that great truth as well. When they go into all the scientific research about how you know, the blood types match and how all the, the, the different chemicals and, and elements and makeup are, are all there, um, it really connects, I mean, all of those miracles. Because somebody in Lanciano, Italy in 750 is not going to be able to have the exact same flesh and blood and chemical composition as as somebody in in Africa or in South America or anything like that. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah because they all oddly match up. It, it just shows that there's some validity behind what this truly is. We already talked about how the the blood it turned into those those five hardened globules and how that signifies that the Eucharist is is truly Christ and all of Christ that you are receiving. When you receive the precious blood, you're not receiving an ounce of of like like a little globule or whatever it is. You're receiving all of Jesus in that. And so I like how that is portrayed. Um, the five globules in reference to the, the five uh, wounds of Christ on the cross. All of these truths are portrayed, and, and that's one of the beauty, the, the beauties of all these Eucharistic miracles is how in all these different ways they are pointing to a truth. You mentioned also that some of these miracles have the flesh still alive, like it's still organically living, and that's something that scientists can't figure out is, is how is this piece of flesh, which is completely separate from every body, still alive? Because Christ is fully alive. Mm. You know, he's not going to show himself in, in, a, in a corpse or a piece of his earthly body or whatever it is anywhere else. He is fully alive. And that's what we are receiving is the crucified and risen Lord yeah. when, when we receive the Eucharist. Even even in blind studies where they took it to scientists and didn't tell them what they were going to be looking at, just asked them, what is, what is this? And they say, how can this be? This is alive, and yet it's a part of a heart. There's no way physically, you know, that we can explain that scientifically. It has to be through faith. Exactly. But all of these things are to just sort of move to the real reality, you know. So, yes, there's these beautiful miracles that are happening, and... Uh, Today I'm focusing primarily on the miracle of Lanciano, which, yeah, you can still go and see. Mm -hmm. And if people get the chance to go and see it, absolutely inspiring, absolutely motivating. But just remember that going to Lanciano, Italy, that great big pilgrimage to be inspired by that miracle, can never surmount to what you receive at Mass mm -hmm. every time you attend, mm -hmm. because that's truly Christ himself. Yes. You'll never be able to fully receive Christ as you do in the Eucharist. Yeah, ah, that's such a beautiful, beautiful point, and 
and it kind of wraps all of that in you know into when we talk you know about the cloning and you know thomas aquinas and what he taught we just need to go to our altars right and absolutely and, yeah how are we receiving you know that's such an important thing because i hear from so many people that you know they you know they wonder if it really is body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ the way people treat it when they go up to receive you know so we really need to check ourselves i'm not trying to put judgment on anybody out there i'm saying look at kelly roper right now and you know (laughs) how are you receiving kelly are you receiving and realizing it is the body blood soul and divinity am i am i acting that way Mm -hmm. you know and and uh you know it's something that we we all need to think about sure so mm, Mm -hmm. such a beautiful thing what else do you want to add i think we have just a about uh, eight minutes left. We don't have anything. Can I ask you kind of an off question? Is that okay? Sure, that's fine. I, I mean, it still goes <laughs> along with what we're doing. But, but you know, I've, I've you know interviewed a lot of people about Eucharistic miracles. I have never heard of a Eucharistic miracle in any faith other than the Catholic Church. You know, and there are other faiths that believe they have the true presence. So to me, that, that speaks a lot about um, the validity of the Catholic Church. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, I, that's, a, that's a good point that, that um, I have not heard of Eucharistic miracles outside the Catholic faith either. I have heard of some Lutherans doing studies where they have taken what they say is the wine and put that under a microscope, and they said that in microscopic particles they could see uh, little bits of, of human flesh. In really? the, uh, hmm. Yes. Um, however, with these studies, the bits of human flesh, they never were able to say where it came from. So it could possibly be from fingers. It's mm-hmm. dust is 90, what, 98% human okay. flesh. It's, it's, uh, it's not as deep or... or researched as the Catholic Eucharistic miracles, and there are so many simple explanations as to why there might be a microscopic particle of mm-hmm. like a finger or a hand or skin. Yeah. And I think I think it was skin that they found in yeah. the, so I mean. <laughs> yeah, and it could be from the person who was, you know. Yeah, Absolutely, I mean, yeah. chances are if we were to do the same thing, we'd find dust particles on our hosts yeah. and in the in the precious blood as well you know but, but not uh, over and over again ab blood from a man heart tissue same thing every single time absolutely what yeah. our miracles are are unexplainable and and that's one of the great things about it is is that no science or any hypothesis really does justice in explaining what these miracles are. And so with the with the truly unexplainable miracles, you're right, it's, it only has happened in the Catholic faith. Yeah. That I've heard of anyway. That I know of. And I, I can't imagine that it could even occur in the others, right? Because they don't have the true presence. Right. You know, the true presence is in the Catholic Church. Yeah, it's, it's all to point to, to a greater truth. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I love Aquinas, too, is Yes, he's very logical, very systematic. You need an hour to get through two pages, <laughs> and uh, I need five hours at least, right? You know, <laughs> it's, but I love the way he writes because if if one is willing to sit down and just go through, realize that this is going to be a slow read, it is accessible, yeah. you know. But Aquinas, even though there are parts that are controversial, 
it's always to increase the faith. That's what his his goal is, is, is to increase the faith, to help people to understand the Eucharist. I mean, he wrote the, um, the Tantum Ergo. I think that, if I'm wrong, correct me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he had such a deep Eucharistic devotion. There were times where he would be found in the chapel in the middle of the night, hugging the tabernacle and weeping, you know. Mm. But all of it was because of his great love of Christ, and that's ultimately what he wants people to, to understand, um, and that it truly is in this sacrament yeah. that we have that connection. Excellent. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for all of your gifts and blessings, for our opportunities to grow closer to you, our opportunities to serve you, our opportunities to grow in union with you. Continue to guide us, continue to help us to grow in this great journey of faith so that we might be with you and with the entire body of Christ for all eternity. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. If you're a business or service that can help support this Double-Edged Sword show, please note that your underwriting will run three times during the show, which runs five times a week. Just call 785-621-4110. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts.